Welcome to Farmside Today, our regular podcast about what's happening in pharmaceutical science, hosted by Professor Gina Martini, Chief Scientist of the Royal Pharmaceutical Society. Visit www.orpharms.com forward slash podcasts for more Farmside Today and other podcasts. You can help us support the work of pharmacists by joining. Membership is just 60p a day. And now over to you, Gino. My name is Gino Martini. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Professor Chris Malloy, who is the CEO of the Medicines Discovery Catapult Centre. Chris, good afternoon. How are you today? Very well, Gino. Really nice to be on with you today. Thanks for inviting me. Before you go into your role at the Discovery Catapult Centre, could you just give our members an update about your career today? Who is Chris Malloy, your background, your career history, and how you got this role as CEO? 31 or 32 years and counting now in and around drug discovery R&D worldwide. I started my career in 1990 uh, with Glaxo, um, then through Glaxo Welcome to GlaxoSmithKline um, in preclinical, and then uh, off to Singapore um, to be COO of a venture-backed biotech called Merlion Pharmaceuticals, which specialised in natural products, drug discovery, and uh, clinically in uh, new, mo- new molecules for infectious disease at a time when everyone thought the infectious disease problem was solved. Um, having uh, raised money and put compounds into clinical development in uh, with Merlion, uh, I returned to the UK and was... Uh, head of corporate development for a life sciences informatics company, IDBS, that provided data management systems for R&D in the pharmaceuticals and other um, high uh, value R&D sectors. Um, I then moved to uh, a life sciences executive search firm called RSA, and I was uh, very proud to be chief executive of that company for a number of years. And then had the uh, irony of being headhunted from running a global headhunter to start the medicines discovery catapult right at the back end of 2016 and into 17. Medicines Discovery Catapult is the nation's research and technology organization for medicines discovery. Um, and that has grown over its uh, over its three years um, to be uh, over 120 people servicing the medicines discovery sector. Uh, and we have a, now a large diagnostics activity that we'll come on to later on in this call. Before we just go into your role as CEO, some people, the concept of a catapult is still maybe new to some of our members. Can you just give a bit of background to what a catapult does? And then obviously then talk about the role you're doing in your centre in particular. The catapult is there to industrialise and drive the adoption of new tools and technologies for our sector. Now, that's easy to say, harder to do, but it is designed to provide active R&D capability for companies to collaborate around shared problems, to develop shared solutions, which raise the tide for everybody. Now, each of the catapult centres is focused on a different area of, of industry, and that uh, those industries are strategic to the nation, whether those are high-value manufacturing, energy systems, offshore renewables, satellite technologies, or in the health space, our cells in medicines discovery, our colleagues in cell and gene therapy, and in the Centre for Process Innovation based at Darlington. So basically, there are effectively three catapult centres up and down the UK, looking at different parts of the discovery development supply chain for healthcare. Yeah. Uh, okay. So you kind of mentioned it, you, you seem to be quite successful. 
I mean, how successful has the Discovery Catapult been to date? The Catapult is now entering the fourth year of its working life. And we have undertaken over 180 projects across all areas of the UK with companies large and small, focusing on the small. And those have been translational projects. They have ranged from helping individual companies develop specific pieces of software, which are now marketable. And uh, there's a a great company, uh, Optibrium, who's recently released a new product, Sorella, which we uh, were very pleased to work with them on. Through the development of new biomarkers, which underpin major international licensing deals for some companies. Through then also to the development of pathways and pipelines of new drugs and those are demonstrated through our work with for example the UK spine network which is an academically driven but industrially put together pipeline of new molecules for diseases associated with aging that pulls together the national community around this shared problem and develops new uh, new R&D assets. We've also developed um, significant skills and, and assets and pipeline in the area of preclinical imaging. And we're offering those, um, those services and those assets back to the community to help them make more evidence-based decisions at an earlier stage that lead to better outcomes in phase one and phase two. And that focusing on imaging runs all the way through from uh, in vivo imaging through mass spec imaging and cellular imaging to enable... R&D companies, biotechs and and large organisations to develop a better understanding of their molecule as it makes it towards man. And by doing that, by by proving that these technologies add value, they add data and they enable decision making, those technologies will then be adopted by the industry. We as a catapult will move on to the development of new technologies but the industry will benefit as a whole from those um, the industrialization of those assets. That's the purpose of the catapult. That's the practice of the catapult, both in lab science, in informatics, and in bringing together um, the national infrastructure to serve bio- the biotech community. For example, through the creation of the UK's first national network of contract research organisations, which enable, you know, pharma class outsourcing for five-person biotechs. Drug discovery syndicates are a really important MDC intervention. They are disease-centred portfolios of collaborative, translational R&D, anchored through to patients via their medical research charities. Syndicates bring together UK academia and biotech, international pharma, clinical opinion leaders, and research charities to combine their skills, de-risk their concepts, and run robust industry-quality drug discovery programs. They also bring other MDC interventions to bear, including our outsourced R&D support program, virtual R&D, and many of our informatics and laboratory science assets. The initial syndicates we have created in mental health, cystic fibrosis, and hearing health are new engines of translational R&D, and very importantly, they are also vehicles which attract new impact investment into our sector. Amazing, Chris. That's really quite a broad scope. And and you certainly are catapulting innovation into the UK life sciences infrastructure, aren't you? I think for me, I've always felt that life sciences is very important to the UK and its economy. What's your view, Chris, certainly in relation to what you're doing in the Catapult Centre right now? The life sciences 
is a strategic pillar of our economy, not just in the in the number of jobs that it creates, but the assets that it creates. And we've certainly seen over the last 12 months, Gino, the oversized impact of the, that the UK's life sciences industry and academic wealth has provided nationwide and internationally. So the UK has a great and long and strong tradition. Let's just take drug discovery, for example. 25% of the world's top 100 selling drugs have been discovered in the UK. The UK has 3% of the world's population. Go figure. You know, this is somewhere where this is a skill, a science, and an industrial way of working that the UK has exceeded in for the last 50 years. And it's an area that we continue to innovate in and centres like the Catapult Centre, but also much of our academic fabric and other translational centres all combine to enable us to to continue to outshine others um, in an area that that must be strategic for us over the next 25 to 50 years. Chris, like you said, in the last 12 months, the way we've been able to, you know, discover new vaccines and and be able to develop them so quickly and get them proved so efficiently uh, clearly is another good example, really is. I share your view, and it really started this statistic, isn't it? 25% drugs have been discovered from UK science and our infrastructure. But we look towards the future, Chris, and of course, the pandemic has probably kind of masked the issues of Brexit. What challenges do you see, if any, for the catapult with respect to Brexit? Looking back a year or two, Gino, to people's concerns about Brexit, the uncertainty that there was about it and the, the lack of movement, perhaps, of people that there was in the run-up to Brexit. Obviously, that's been overly compounded by the pandemic. But I think, you know, now that Brexit has happened, the industry, you know, has its feet on the ground, can see where perhaps some of the ongoing challenges may be in the complexity of regulation uh, internationally. But the most important thing that the UK can do now is recognising we're in a post-Brexit environment, is look to our strengths. Look to our strengths in science, in skills, and in our ability to create high-value assets from both of those. We have the additional benefit here of a large and active financing community, which has been demonstrated over the last 12 months in the, in the amount of VC capital that's been raised, a record amount um, for, for this particular sector. So I think from a Brexit perspective, how can the catapult help? Well, we can continue to support SMEs and biotechs and technology firms to prove that their assets are valuable and they will get adopted, Brexit or no Brexit, both nationally and internationally, because this is a global team sport. Obviously, there will be complexities in international regulation for those companies who are looking to trial their assets in the UK, across Europe and out across the wider world. And I think we've seen with the cell and gene therapy catapult has been extremely active in helping companies understand the regulatory environment for cell and gene therapies. In the same way that the medicines discovery catapult working in other areas of complex medicines, for example, uh, can start to help the community uh, understand some of these regulatory challenges and work through them. But the assets are still here. The science is still here. I think the skills development will need to be continued 
at pace as we have shown over the last 12 months we can develop skills train skills quickly if we have purpose and we do so those things combined help us look to a post-brexit future that maximizes what we're good at i uh, totally agree with you chris that's really very reassuring to hear from you and kind of supportive view that i have we've got some great researchers got some great universities we've got some great life sciences companies and we've got some great centers as the catapult that you represent in, in operation so it, the future looks 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 very, very good and very promising I, I hinted and you've hinted as well the last 12 months about what happened clearly with the pandemic and um, has the catapult center have played a role in the pandemic response by any chance um, so the Medicines Discovery Catapult was responsible for the establishment of the Lighthouse Network, you know, across the UK, starting off with the three major centres, Alderley Park, Milton Keynes and Glasgow. And that leveraged our understanding in high throughput science, science at scale with quality and purpose. And these the Lighthouse Labs, the first initial three were each established in around about three weeks and three days each. That wasn't a target. That was just history and tested over three million citizens in the first hundred days and has now tested over 30 million people nationwide. The lighthouses are still the bedrock of the non-NHS um, branch of, of the COVID testing, but has worked exceptionally well with NHS groups and Public Health England in the creation of this unprecedented diagnostics capacity, the largest project in diagnostics in UK history. That is amazing, Chris, and you and whoever has been involved should be applauded for that. And so is this linked to your role as independent chair of the UK COVID-19 Rapid Test Consortium? Is that the same thing? Is that linked together? After the establishment of the, the lighthouses, I took over the role of the of running the industry consortium for the rapid tests um, uh, as a separate activity. Um, the, the lighthouse at, uh, at Alderley Park is still under the, under the catapult. Um, but the, the leader of the labs uh, nationwide is uh, Professor Dame Anna Dominicek now. Um, so the rapid test consortium um, was all about trying to increase the flow of new tests into validation, but also the scale up of the manufacturing capacity in the UK for lateral flow to in, ensure that we have resilience of supply. As we move now, and I think everybody's starting to see the impact of lateral flow now in all of our lives as a vital tool, one of many to help us get out of lockdown and into the new normal. But it was, very, it was vitally important for the UK that we, uh, that we understood uh, what we had as a nation, were able to funnel uh, um, those assets through validation um, to prove their, their value, their worth, and, and then to be able to manufacture those at scale. And that's been the key activity of the rapid testing consortium over the last six months um, and has been um, enhanced by a digital element uh, that enables us to influence and shape how the data that come from the diagnostics that we use are used safely securely but effectively it is one part of a, of a panoply of point of care molecular diagnostics 
PCR and lateral flow that enables us to find those who are infectious, to be able to test those who are infected, and therefore to be able to to manage that return to normal life in the most data-enabled way that we can. And each of those different types of tests bring something else to the table. And as we go forward, those tests will continue to evolve as the virus evolves to make sure that we are ahead of it because that's where we're able to be now. We have unprecedented PCR capacity. We have unprecedented lateral flow manufacturing capacity. And that that really enables us to smother this virus as uh, as much as we possibly can. Absolutely. Here, here. Totally agree with that. And, And actually, you've mentioned manufacturing a number of times in your response to the last question. I think there's been a view that maybe the pandemic has shown that we need a stronger manufacturing base and potentially clinical development capacity due to, you know, historical reasons. I mean, do you think that's true based on what you've just said? I do believe it's true. I think particularly in the diagnostics field, it's it's been an area of relatively low investment for the country over the last few decades. And, you know, whilst it's completely appropriate and understood that the the medicines and, and therapeutics have been probably in the spotlight, diagnostics has been less so. And I think it's it's vitally important for the nation now, but also over the next 20 to 50 years. That, that diagnostics become more of our lives than they have been, that the diagnostics industry gets more of the spotlight than it has. And manufacturing is a key part of that, because it's not just about the discovery of new diagnostics and their validation through catapult centres like, like Medicines Discovery, but also their manufacture at scale. We've shown that over the last 12 months, that citizens are engaged with diagnostics, can use them effectively and will change their behaviour on the basis of them. If we're able to democratise diagnostics, taking the dividend from COVID in not just uh, citizens' understanding of diagnostics, but the remote access to them uh, and so on, then you know, we've got a real opportunity here in the UK, not just to improve our own health, first and foremost, but to improve the wealth of the, of the diagnostics industrial community. And manufacturing is you know, a critical component within that. You must see some exciting therapies being developed all kinds of diseases and obviously you talk about of aging and clearly we have this virus that seems to target very elderly people have you seen any exciting therapies and developments in elderly for example towards the variants of the coronavirus anything you've seen that you could share with our members one of the things that we've been doing actively with the academic community and the industrial community is using some of our technology around repurposing um, and these are some of our informatics technologies to go and look at open data to be able to mine it deeply for the activities of existing molecules and existing therapeutics for what some of their crossover opportunities may be. And I'm pleased to say some very strong progress has been made. And we're now moving some of those molecules and existing therapeutics into preclinical evaluation against COVID and other viruses. And we've actually picked that up through purposeful informatics work. I think that, you know, that is an exposition of some of the technologies that we've been generating for other uses. For example, you know, uses by medical research charities who've got a real repurposing agenda and for whom we've uh, we've done great work and continue to to provide assistance. So I do see progress being made here. I do see both existing therapies repurposed and new therapies coming along. 
one of the things that this has certainly done, though, Gino, is reignited uh, or perhaps reilluminated the importance of antimicrobials, antivirals as an area that the world simply can't say problem solved. And I, I hope very much that this experience that everybody has seen writ large and fantastically expensive to the entire world has reminded everybody of the O'Neill report that uh, that underscored the vital importance of of antimicrobials and antimicrobial resistance as an issue that everyone has got to put their shoulder into now because this is a taster of what may occur if we're presented with multi-drug resistant bacteria for example and in that case we haven't got uh, the opportunity for a 12-month vaccine-based intervention to to overcome antimicrobial resistance so shoulders to the wheel in that particular area. And I also think that um, we do have an opportunity for repurposing of many of the of, uh, antivirals. As we looked to other infectious respiratory diseases that will get more prominence quite rightly now uh, because of what we've experienced over the last 12 months. I, I totally agree with you. And of course, you and I both cut our teeth in Glaxo, GlaxoSmithKline, a rich heritage in antimicrobial development, anti-infectives development whether it's HIV, uh, whether it's uh, herpes simplex virus or you know, the whole string of penicillins that were developed. I think this has been a wake-up call. And, and like yourself, we, it, it, it's beholden on you and people like you and I to say, right, never again should we be exposed to this kind of threat. And we should invest in research in those arenas and development facilities. So Chris, absolutely very wise words from you. And I'd just like to thank you on behalf of the Royal Pharmaceutical Society for joining us today in his podcast sessions and for your contribution in, in keeping the UK at the forefront of healthcare innovation and also the role you've been playing uh, during the, the pandemic. Thanks for joining us at Farmside today. We regularly add new chats with interesting and important figures at www.orfarms.com forward slash podcast. So check back again soon to keep up with the latest in pharmacy and pharmaceutical science. And remember, RPS membership costs just 60p a day. Find out more at www.orfarms.com forward slash RPS membership.